Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, as always, we are surrendered to the work of Your Spirit. We believe that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in the hearts of the people of God so that we might become mature. Give us ears to hear. As Jesus so often said, Him that has an ear, let him hear. And so, Father, we pray that we might be among those who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. A word about She Presses On Conference. going to start in a couple days. We do a lot of conferences around here, and they're big events. It's sold out. There's no more room left. This whole place, every seat is going to be taken. So just um, wanted to get that out. Uh, my staff suggested that I make that announcement so that there wouldn't be a last-minute rush. Just, there's no room. It's sold out. It's going to be a great event. I believe it's going to be a life-changing event. I believe it's one of the things that could spark real revival. Uh, I know what the speakers are going to be dealing with, and it's going to be powerful. Um, Matthew chapter 24. If you've ever taken a tour to Israel, and by the way, how many of you have gone to Israel? Could you just raise your hands up? Wow, that's awesome. A lot of you have. Well, then you know that one of the highlights of the trip is when we take the bus to the Mount of Olives, and from the Mount of Olives, you look over the city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, like the picture that showed Joel Rosenberg just a moment ago. That was in the background. It takes your breath away. You see that picture and it's just, oh, that's it. It's in front of me. That's where the temple stood. It's an amazing sight. In some of the rabbinical writings known as the Midrash, there's a saying that goes like this. The land of Israel is at the center of the world. Jerusalem is at the center of the land of Israel. And the temple is at the center of Jerusalem. In other words, it was the rabbinical way of saying the very center of the earth, the center of God's program on the earth, is the temple in the city of Jerusalem, in the land of Israel. Jesus was with His disciples on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. At that time, there wasn't a golden dome called the Dome of the Rock. There was a temple that stood, the Jewish temple. And they were overlooking from the eastern side across the Kidron Valley. They were looking over the city of Jerusalem, packed with millions of people who had been there and were there for the Passover season. And they're realizing this is the center of God's prophetic program. Now let me give you sort of a fourfold or four-pointed outline of the city itself. Jerusalem is the geographic center of the earth biblically the geographic center. Now, I know we grew up in American schools, and so we thought America was the center of the world. That's what the map shows. 
When you see a world map, America is right in the middle. But the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5, God speaking, God says, See, I have set Jerusalem in the midst of all of the nations round about. God said it's the center. It's the center of the earth, biblically. The geographic center. Number two, it's the salvation center of the world spiritually. There's no other place in the world where God purchased the salvation for the world except Jerusalem, right outside the Damascus gate at a hill called Golgotha, Calvary, is where Jesus' cross stood. And it was there in Jerusalem where God made that transaction of salvation. That's why Jesus could say to the woman at the well of Samaria, you don't even know what you worship. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Number three, Jerusalem is the storm center of the earth prophetically. The prophet Zechariah says that God will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all of the nations of the world. There's coming a point, and Jesus will speak about it in this chapter, and we're seeing signs of it today, where the world is starting to understand that maybe the real roadblock for peace is to get rid of Israel, because If Egypt and Syria and Iraq and Iran and you name all of the nations around are having trouble with Israel, if the roadblock is Israel, let's get rid of it. Let's not side with it. And that's an unfortunate position because the same prophet said, whoever comes against Israel, God says, Israel is the apple of my eye. I will come against them as a nation. So I'm always concerned when I hear policymakers sort of backhand Israel. Let's not support Israel. It's because of our foreign policies in the Middle East that caused 9-11 and caused the world to hate us, etc. Every pundit in the world knows that what happens in Brussels or London or Rome or Washington, D.C. is important, but not as important as what happens in Jerusalem. But finally, fourth... Jerusalem is the glory center of the earth, ultimately. Isaiah the prophet, in the second chapter of his book, said it will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house, the temple mount, will be established above all of the mountains, all of the nations, and all nations will flow into it. For out of Zion will go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We are on Jewish ground in Matthew 24. We have to see it through Jewish lens, not a Baptist lens, not a Presbyterian lens, not a Calvary lens, a Jewish lens. You're going to read things like Judea, Sabbath, the inhabitants of the city. It's all about what is going on in Judea, Jerusalem, and the land of Israel. It is called the Olivet Discourse simply because Jesus tells his disciples this chapter on the Mount of Olives, hence Olivet Discourse. He is speaking of the future, the future of Jerusalem, the future of the Jews, the future of 
the world and his future coming. So in verse 1, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Now Mark tells us in his gospel that the disciples were just like dropping their jaw, like guffawing over the temple, like check this out. Look at these stones. This is enormous. It's monumental. It's beautiful. I'll tell you why in a moment. And then Jesus said to them, verse 2, Do you not see all these things, these stones, that gold, this structure, this layout? Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Understand something. 2,000 years ago, in the Jewish mind, the temple was the evidence of God's blessing upon them. As long as the temple stood, it was to them a sign that God was on our side. He is still with us. His presence is here. And they saw the temple that way. Now get this. They began building the temple in Jerusalem around 20 B.C., And it wasn't finished till about 64 A.D., over 80 years. It took 18,000 men over 80 years to build. Imagine, for some people, their entire life and their son's lives were building this temple. Some believe that the temple never really was completed when it was eventually destroyed. When we speak of the temple, we're speaking of a mountain with a complex The mountain that has a peak was leveled off with a retaining wall. Fill dirt was put in to make a 36-acre complex. 36 acres. Now, I mentioned that retaining wall. On the southeast, and I could show it to you today, the southeastern part of the Temple Mount, there was 158 feet from the very top called the pinnacle of the temple, to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. And it was in that area where Satan took Jesus and said, jump, because the scripture says he will give his angels charge over you to bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. That's the pinnacle of the temple area, an enormous complex. Now, you have this 36-acre flat area that levels off atop of a mountain, Mount Zion. And then... You have the temple itself, which was 90 feet taller. If you look up and see the pinnacle of this ceiling, you're looking at about 30, 32 feet. Go three times the peak of this building, about 90 feet, and that's how tall the temple itself was above the temple mount. It was made of white marble, And a gold cornice was placed on the very top of it. The Babylonian Talmud says, He who has never seen Herod's temple has never seen a beautiful temple. It was absolutely magnificent. Some of the stones, and I could show you some of them that are left in that retaining wall, not the temple, it's gone, that weigh 400 tons. And it's always a mystery to people. How did they move that stone there? You know, you see these huge cranes and the capacity is a ton, two tons, five tons, but 400 tons. 
Some of these stones were enormous. And yet, in 70 AD, that temple proper was destroyed because a Roman guard threw in a torch that caught some of the vestments, the clothing, the veil of the temple on fire, the gold around the cornice melted into the cracks of the marble, and the greed of the Roman soldiers drove them to take every single stone and overturn it to get the gold that had melted in between it. Fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus, not one stone that you see will be left upon another. They will all be thrown down. So complete was the destruction of the temple proper that the historian Flavius Josephus says somebody visiting Jerusalem after the destruction would never have guessed the city had ever been inhabited or where the temple even stood. Even though there are uh, archaeological artifacts there today, there's still debate as to where the temple of Herod, the temple that was there at the time of Jesus, actually stood. So he makes this prediction, verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Boy, am I glad the disciples asked that question. Because the answer to that question is the 24th chapter. I always like it when people ask questions and they go, well, this may be a dumb question. There's no such thing. If you don't know the answer, it's not a dumb question. It's a legitimate question. It was a legitimate question and Jesus will spend the remainder of the chapter answering it. They said, what is the sign of your coming? You see the word coming. It's the Greek word parousia. It means your appearing, your personal presence. Okay, today when we hear that question, you know what you and I think of? His future coming, His second coming. What the disciples were thinking of, however, was the first coming, the glorious appearing of the Messiah. When they said, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? The when to that question, the expected answer that they wanted from Jesus was a day, two days probably by the end of Passover at the latest, they weren't thinking of years and years into the future. They were thinking of something immediately. That Jesus would gloriously, personally present Himself as the King, as the Ruler, as the Messiah. So when they ask the question, they're not thinking of second coming. They're thinking of first coming, which should happen any day now. Here's a little insight. In Luke's Gospel, Luke tells us when Jesus approached Jerusalem, He told them a parable, listen, because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Immediately. You see, a couple days ago, Jesus had been on this cool donkey ride coming into Jerusalem. And everybody said, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now that to them was the signal that something is going to come down, something's going to happen. He's going to make His glorious appearing at any moment. Hence they ask this question, well, okay, so the donkey ride was cool, but when are you going to make the glorious messianic appearance? This will help you. 
in the mind of the disciples, they had an eschatology. Now, some of you know what that means. Some of you don't. An eschatology is a scenario of last day events. What's going to happen in the... What are the events that that lead up to the culmination of the end of everything? That's eschatology. The disciples had a fixed eschatology. Number one on the list, there would be a time of turmoil in the Jewish nation. They saw that as already fulfilled by a Roman occupation. The Romans were in control. Check. World is in turmoil, especially our world. Number two on their list, a forerunner, a herald, an Elijah-like forerunner will come heralding, predicting, announcing the coming of the Messiah. No wonder people had flocked to the Jordan River to hear and see John the Baptist. Check, the forerunner had come. Number three, the Messiah will appear, defeating his enemies. Number four, the scattered Jews from around the world will return to Israel. Jerusalem will be set up. The kingdom will be brought in geocentrically from the city of Jerusalem. The disciples were thinking they're somewhere in between number two and number three. Turmoil has happened. The forerunner has come. We're waiting for the Messiah to set up his kingdom. So they're a bit puzzled. They have a problem. If Jesus just predicted the temple, which is at the center of everything, is going to be destroyed, they're going, uh, we don't get this. How can you be our Messiah, our deliverer, if the temple is going to be destroyed? Why would you predict that? We don't get that. What will be the sign of your coming, your parousia, your glorious appearance as the Messiah? You take over the world. You rule and reign from Jerusalem in the temple. You're predicting the temple is going to be destroyed. We don't get it. That's in their minds as they're asking this question. Okay, now let's fast forward to our day and age because the problem we have is we read Matthew 24 and other eschatological books like Daniel and Revelation from our viewpoint, not from a Jewish viewpoint. But from our viewpoint, from our modern day vantage point, we are looking forward to two events on our horizon. Event number one, Jesus coming toward the earth for his church. Event number two, Jesus coming all the way to the earth with his church. There's a difference. The first is what we call the rapture of the church. The second event is the second coming, his parousia, his glorious appearing. According to the Bible, Jesus at some time in the future, I believe at any moment, will come out of heaven toward the earth and we will be raptured. That's the word, 1 Thessalonians 4, taken up into heaven to meet the Lord in the air. But after a period of tribulation, which is largely written about in Matthew 24, Jesus will come all the way to the earth with his church to rule in the reign. And guess what? He's going to come back on the Mount of Olives. That's why when the disciples were looking up into heaven, they're Jesus was ascending into heaven. The angel appeared to them and said, You men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? For this same Jesus will come back in like manner as you have seen him leave into heaven. He's coming back from heaven to the earth. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives. And he's coming back this time with his church. So the focus of Matthew 24 is not the rapture, but the second coming and the events that happen 
in Jerusalem principally, but all the way around the world, but principally in Jerusalem for those end-time believers, Jewish believers, that culminates in the second coming of Christ after the tribulation period. So verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Notice the word many will come. Not one will come, but many will come. We often talk about the Antichrist. That's the ruler who will emerge in the tribulation period, at the end times, who will be a world-dominating Ruler, very persuasive, very powerful, very energetic, very charismatic. And we, we talk about him as, you know, that's the Antichrist, and you're right. But here it says, many will come. Now we know that in the end of days, Satan's masterpiece, the Antichrist, will be unleashed in the world. But listen to the words of 1 John, I'm reading... 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even so, now many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. There have been many, and there will be a proliferation of false teachers, Antichrists, in the future tribulation period that will deceive people. Whenever God works, Satan works. When you turn on your light on your front porch, the bugs come. When God turns on His gospel light, Satan lets the bugs loose. They muck things up. They're sent to confuse people with false ideas and false teachings. So everybody goes, I don't know. Everybody has their own way. Who knows what is the right way? Let's just embrace and accept them all. Many antichrists will come. Many will deceive. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, which are typically the result of wars and earthquakes in various places. Now, we've always had war. That's nothing new. Only 8% of world history has been, historians tell us, 8% has been a time of peace. The rest has been times of war. Since man was on the earth, they fought. Their weapons were primitive, but they fought in wars whether it was the fist or the stick or the stone or the club or a spear or a javelin or a knife or bullets or bombs. No matter the technology, mankind has fought and there have always been wars. Since 3600 B.C., it's estimated that about 14,500 wars have occurred upon the earth in which 3.6 billion people have been killed. Here's something sobering. If you were to tally up the property damage of all of those wars that I just mentioned, 
the property damage due to all of the wars of history would pay for a belt of solid gold that would go around the entire earth that's about 100 feet wide and 33 feet thick. It is the nature of the human. There have always been wars. However, toward the end, the wars will escalate. And in the final chapter of world history, the tribulation period, the wars will increase. Daniel the prophet gives us some insight. He says that there will come this ruler who will make a covenant, a pact with Israel and break the covenant. And because of that, wars will increase and desolations are determined until the end. Now, you don't have to do it, but you may want to write in your notes or in the margin of your Bible or put a marker in Revelation chapter 6, where the tribulation is also foreseen by the Apostle John. And in chapter 6, he sees four, do you remember what they were? Horsemen, called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The second horse is a red horse. And it's a horse that brings in war. And a rider sat upon that red horse, says John, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that men should kill one another. So during that period of tribulation that Jesus is describing in this chapter that John and Daniel write about in detail... Wars will increase, increase, increase to a fever pitch until a final battle occurs, the mother of all battles, called the Battle of Armageddon, because it takes place in the valley of Ar-Megiddo, the mountains of Megiddo, the valley or the plain, that huge landmass in Israel that has been a historic battleground and the last battle of the world will take place there. Revelation says all the kings of the earth and the nations, the kings of the nations gather to fight against the Lord in that battle. Verse 8. All these, says Jesus, all of these, all the things he has just described, the deception, the war, the pestilence, the famine, etc. All these are the beginning of of sorrows. The literal translation is all these are the beginning of the sorrows of birth. If you have a new international version, it says all these are the beginning of birth pains. My mind goes back to May of 1986 when our son was about to be born. I didn't know much about birth except from my medical background, my book reading, and I'd been around. But when it's your son and your wife is having a baby and you're wondering, is this, is this it? Um, you discover that um, all pregnancies have certain amount of pain and certain amount of contraction. But when the pain and the contractions become more frequent and more intense, they're timed, Right? You time them and then they come shorter and shorter. That is the signal. Those birth pains, those contractions, the frequency and the intensity, that's the sign. This is it. And so you get all excited when the beginning of birth pains happen and the doctor says, come to the hospital. The contractions have been timed. I think this is it. You're dilated. Come on in. You're going to have birth soon. So the birth of the new coming kingdom age 
will be preceded by the pain and the sorrow and the contractions of the birth pains of the tribulation. And though we've always had wars and we've always had deception and we've always had earthquakes and we've always had pestilence and we've always had famine, when those things become more frequent and more intense, you know the time is very, very short. So you read the book of Revelation and you see the contractions. You see judgments, seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments. And then after that, It's that mother of all battles. And Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives and He brings in the glorious kingdom age that is predicted. Verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Mark the word. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for My name's sake. Then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Now I have a question for you. When Jesus says in verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation, who is the you that he's speaking about? It can't be the disciples. It can't refer at all to the disciples because they never were around to see the things Jesus speaks about in Matthew 24. They don't see, for example... Enduring to the end of the age of the tribulation, verse 13. The disciples that Jesus was addressing at this moment, they never saw uh, worldwide evangelization, as mentioned in verse 14. The disciples that Jesus was speaking to never saw the abomination of desolation, predicted in verse 15. Those disciples that heard this message... They never saw the stars fall out of heaven and the sun lose its light and the heavens go dark, as predicted in verse 29. So when he says you, he's not speaking to those disciples. He's speaking the you are referring to the end time believers who will see the events in the tribulation period. Those believers at the end time who will be around to see the events of the tribulation go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Skip. I thought you taught us that there is a rapture coming before the tribulation. So if believers are raptured before the tribulation, how do you have believers in the tribulation? Answer, God will save more after the tribulation begins. That's how. And I'll show you how that works in just a moment. Verse 12. God bless you. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now that doesn't mean that if a person endures the tribulation, that he'll earn heaven. That by enduring the hardship of the tribulation, that he'll be saved. It doesn't mean that. You're saved by Jesus and Jesus alone. It simply means the endurance of a person during that period is the proof of salvation. In other words, those who are saved will endure to the end. That's the idea. It's the proof of it. He who endures to the end will be saved. Now let me give you a twist. There's an interesting thing about any kind of tribulation, any kind of suffering, any kind of trials that we all experience. It's interesting that your ability to endure trials, tribulation, pain, and suffering, your ability to endure them is produced by the trials. You go, oh, I hate that. 
You mean that I have to go through suffering and trial and hardship to learn what it's like to endure it? Exactly. You can't just read a book and go, got it wired. I learned about it in my quiet time. I'm ready to go. No, you have to go through the thick of suffering and tribulation. And that experience gives you the ability to handle it. That's why Paul in the book of Romans says, not only this, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces patience or perseverance. And perseverance produces character and character produces hope. So it's the tribulation that produces the ability to endure tribulation. Seasons you, strengthens you. I've always enjoyed the story of the young minister just starting out in the ministry who went to an older minister who had preached that night. And the young minister said, Pastor, would you pray for me? I'm an impatient young man. Would you pray that God would give me patience? The older gentleman smiled and paused. He said, sure, if that's what you'd like. Bowed his head and he said, Father in heaven, I pray that you would send this young man hardship, tribulation, suffering and pain in Jesus' name. And the young man said, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. I didn't ask for that. I asked that you pray for patience. And then he quoted Romans chapter 5, tribulation worketh patience. You want patience, you want perseverance, you go through suffering. Jesus predicted it. You know, maybe we should be praying for stronger backs rather than for lighter loads. How about it? Oh Lord, I hate this. Just take it away. Make my way smooth. If your way was always smooth, you'd be the most worthless, flabby, have no root at all kind of a believer there was. It's when you go through it and you stick with it. Because sometimes the only way out is through. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, said David. We don't pray for that. We don't say, Lord, take me through. We say, Lord, airlift me from mountain to mountaintop experience. I don't want to go through the valley. But the only way out is through. Go through. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. That verse has been butchered by more mission organizations than probably any other verse I have ever heard. I've heard preachers say, we need to hasten the day of the Lord. We need to get Jesus to come back and we can bring Jesus Christ back. I've heard this preached. By going out and preaching the gospel in all the world, because, say some of these preachers, Jesus can't return until we, the church, get the gospel into all the world. As if somehow we by our own power can schedule the coming of the Lord. I have news for you. God is sovereign and He's going to come back at His appointed time. Not because you ushered in His kingdom. It has nothing to do with God can't come back until you go out and preach it to every person. This is what it means. What this verse means in its context is that despite the deception, despite the war, despite the persecution, despite the disease, all the things Jesus has been talking about, that God will have His witness in the world until the very end. 
He's always going to have his witness, and it's even going to be in the very worst time of history. The tribulation will be the greatest mess the world has ever seen. And in the greatest mess, the greatest message will still be preached. You know how it'll be preached? That answers the question I brought up a moment ago. If believers are going to be raptured before the tribulation, how is God going to save people? Uh, How are there going to be believers in the tribulation? Because He's going to save more of them. So let's say the rapture happens today and then the seven-year tribulation is in front of us and there's no believers in that rest of the world. What will happen? Number one, the Bible predicts there will be two witnesses who will come during that period of time with miraculous power. Some think they're the Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah. Those two witnesses are going to have an impact on the Jewish nation so that 144,000 Jews get saved, according to Revelation chapter 7. They are sealed for God's service in the tribulation period. Now think of this, 144,000 Jewish believers. Have you ever seen one Jewish believer? Have you ever seen somebody who was Jewish like a Joel Rosenberg get converted? Almost every Jewish believer I have seen... There's this great power that comes in knowing, here's my heritage, here's my history. Um, Part of it is fulfilled in my salvation. I believe in Yeshua Christ as my Messiah. I mean, you think of the 12 disciples. Those were Jewish believers. They they turned the world upside down. Imagine 144,000 of them. So two witnesses will prompt 144,000 Jews to be saved during the tribulation period. 144,000 Jews will prompt an innumerable multitude of Gentiles to also be saved. Those are the souls under the altar in the book of Revelation. But, here's the clincher, and here is, I believe, the fulfillment of the verse that you just read. In the tribulation period, God is going to send an angel throughout the earth in the skies, in the heavens, to give one last final call. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, you know, like if an angel flew through heaven, then I believe. And like told it to me. God will send that angel. To every tribe, every tongue, every single human on the earth will see and hear the final everlasting gospel preached through that angel. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. John speaking, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people. We have a question that came in from Virginia. Showcat in Virginia. She has visited us before. Let's put it up on the screen, then we'll get back into this. She asks, will there be a forerunner to the Antichrist since Satan usually mimics God? It's a great question. The book of Revelation tells us that there will be a false prophet who will be like the John the Baptist, pointing to the Antichrist, saying that the world should worship him. There will also be an image that this forerunner will point to, to worship as God that embodies the power of the Antichrist. 
So just as there is a biblical trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's going to be a satanic trinity in the tribulation period, that time of deception. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. The false prophet will act as the forerunner and will deceive people and tell people to worship that Antichrist. So, back to our text. Jesus said, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. There will be a final dramatic evangelization for every person on earth. Nobody has an excuse. Then the end will come. Then Jesus will return. Then all the saints, uh, all the wars will cease. Then the saints will return with Him, and God will rule over His creation. Therefore, verse 15, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, that is of the temple. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Okay, now, you still with me? Verse 15, When you see the abomination of desolation as spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Three times in the book of Daniel is mentioned this phrase, the abomination of desolation. Now, he describes what that means. Daniel describes it as the taking away of the daily sacrifice in the Jewish temple and replacing that sacrifice with an abomination, some image of false worship. Now let me take you back in history. You've all heard of Alexander the Great. Do you know that Alexander had a dream? His dream was to spread Greek culture and language throughout the entire world, and he really almost was successful. He basically conquered the known world during his lifetime. He died, however, at a young age in Babylon. He was drunk that night. He was crying out that he had conquered the world and there was nothing left for him to conquer. And he died. Before he died, a question was posed to Alexander the Great on his deathbed. To whom shall your kingdom go? His answer, give it to the strong. So the kingdom of Alexander the Great was divided between four of his generals. Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, Seleucus. Still with me? Cassander took Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus took Thrace and Asia Minor. Ptolemy took Egypt. Seleucus took the Asian provinces, including Syria. Let's focus on that last one, Seleucus. From Seleucus, the fourth general of Alexander, came a kingdom called the Seleucid Empire, if you remember your history, if you took that. The eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty, the Syrian dynasty, was a guy called Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV gave a name to himself, Antiochus Epiphanius the illustrious one, or God made manifest. He believed that he was the embodiment of Zeus, and he demanded to be worshipped. 
In 168 B.C., Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, surrounded Jerusalem and attacked it, killing 80,000 Jews, selling 40,000 Jews as slaves. He went to the temple. He tore down the altar of sacrifice. He proclaimed this temple is a temple to Zeus. He put an image of Zeus in the temple and demanded it be worshipped. He took away the daily sacrifices. He took a pig, a swine, the unclean meat of the the Jews would, you know, you you know what, what that is to them. Unclean. He killed a swine, a pig, in the temple and spread its juices all over the temple. When that happened, the Jews knew that that is what Daniel predicted. Or at least in part. That was the abomination that causes the temple to be desolate. Desolation. The sacrifices have been replaced with an abomination. They called that the abomination of desolation. Okay, stop there. That's been fulfilled. But Jesus after it was fulfilled, long after it was fulfilled, says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, so from Jesus' perspective, though it had been fulfilled in part historically, there was a greater fulfillment in the future. It was yet future. When you see, future tense, the abomination of desolation. Now I have a question for you. Has there ever been, since Jesus predicted, an abomination of desolation? No, there hasn't. Yes, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, but they did not put an idol in it and demand before they destroyed it that the people worship it. But Jesus predicts that there will stand in the future a temple and the last world ruler, according to Daniel, will reenact in those temple courts what Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV, the eighth Seleucid king of that dynasty, did to the Jews in times past. How do I know it's yet future? Because listen to what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, concerning the Antichrist, the man of sin, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So in the future, expect at some point a temple to be built in Jerusalem so that the Antichrist, the man of sin, in the future, in the tribulation, will perform on a greater level, a worldwide level, what Antiochus Epiphanes did in 168 B.C. Now here's what's interesting. There hasn't been a temple since the Muslims, or since it was destroyed by the Romans, the Muslims have a golden domed shrine of the book on top. But there's an interesting group of people that are called the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. And if you were there with us on our tours, we've taken you there. The Temple Institute believe in the God-given right of the Jews to build a temple. They're just waiting for the right time. They already have priests that have been trained for the priesthood. They have the vestments of the priesthood. They have many of the implements ready to put in the temple made to spec. They already have a Sanhedrin in place, a Jewish governing body. And they're waiting for the right time for the temple in the future to be built, not knowing that they'll be fulfilling the scripture of Daniel and Jesus and Paul, that it will be the Antichrist temple that he will make desolate. But it's all coming. You can see it happening before your very eyes. Then Jesus says, verse 16, 
Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe unto those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on Sabbath. Transportation virtually shuts down even today in Israel on the Sabbath. It's not a good day to get around. You notice that the language here is localized. It is geospecific. It's speaking about Israel, about Judea, and about the Sabbath. In other words, the catastrophes that are coming to the world will center in the Middle East and specifically Jerusalem. Even though the Antichrist will affect the world, ground zero will be the temple, the Temple Mount, the city of Jerusalem, the area of Judea, the nation of Israel. That is going to be ground zero. That is why Jeremiah the prophet, when he looks to the future, he writes also about the tribulation. He says, Alas, for the day is great. There is none like it. It is a time of Jacob's trouble. Another name for Israel. Jacob's trouble. Now let me throw in something else because I want to tie loose ends together. According to Zechariah, Jesus says, you know, flee, get out of town. Don't even look back. Get out of town. According to Zechariah, those that flee, not everyone will succeed. Zechariah says two-thirds of those who try to flee will be killed, and only one-third will be left. But John says of those who are left, they will be protected by God in a special place east of Israel for three and a half years, supernaturally sealed and protected by God. Revelation 12, verse 6, John sees a woman, identified as the nation of Israel, who fled into the wilderness, where God has prepared a place for her to be cared for for 1,260 days, or three and a half years. Okay, now let's move on. only have a few moments left. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Okay, stop. Compare what you just read with verse 9. Verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation. You will be killed. Compare that to this verse. Then there will be great tribulation. Because of these two verses, scholars will often differentiate between the tribulation... Generally, they usually call that the seven years. Some get specific and say that's the first three and a half of the seven years. And the second half, the last three and a half years, is the Great Tribulation. It's demarcated by the abomination of desolation. So you have three and a half years of turmoil, but relative peace in comparison to the last. Then in the middle of it, you have the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist sets up the image, demands to be worshipped, breaks the treaty with the Jews, people flee from Jerusalem, wars break out, and the great tribulation begins. What is the great tribulation? It's a confluence of God's stored up wrath on the earth, poured out by seals, trumpets, and bull judgments. It is the rebellious nature of man... And it is the hatred of Satan all wrapped up in one short period of human history. It is a time when God will supernaturally but directly and definitely intervene in human affairs. 
And at the end of that, that will be the end of all judgment. There will never be any more judgment. Jesus will come back and usher in the kingdom age. So then there will be great tribulation, as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, no, nor ever shall be. Daniel says there will be a time of trouble such as never was since the beginning of nations. Look at verse 22. And unless those days were shortened, there would no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days will be shortened. What does that mean? There's only 1,260 days and it's over. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more judgment. It's over. All the wrath of God will be summarized and finalized in three and a half years with the final bold judgments being poured out. The battle of Armageddon ensues and then Jesus comes. So there's a storm coming, but there's a light at the end of that tunnel. There's a silver lining in those dark clouds that are coming. That's quite a statement, isn't it? The worst time in human history. Think back to some of the bad times in history. Dark ages, medieval times, no progress. World War I, World War II, the Holocaust. Those were all child's play in comparison to what is coming. And there would no flesh be saved unless those days were shortened. If you read the book of Revelation and you realize the enormous amount of people on the earth that will be completely obliterated. You understand the meaning of this. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. You can check out Revelation 6, the rider on the white horse who pretends to be Christ but is not. See, I told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In Revelation 1, John the Apostle sees Jesus Christ as sort of the prologue of the book. It's really good to have Jesus show up at the beginning before he talks about all the bad stuff and then Jesus shows up at the end. But he sees the glorified Christ in this vision. And he says, He is coming and behold, every eye shall see him. As lightning comes from the east to the west, Jesus will be seen at his second coming. Now that's, that's different from the rapture. At the rapture, nobody's going to see the Lord except believers because he's not coming to the earth. He's coming toward the earth, in the air. We meet the Lord in the air. We go up to meet Him. But at His second coming, He comes to the earth, sets His foot on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah says the Mount of Olives will split in two, and we'll be with Him. I always like to think about that as I fly over Israel and I look down, if I can, on the Mount of Olives. That's the view we're going to get. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Whenever there's a decaying corpse, a corrupting carcass, the birds of the air swarm around it. There will be the corruption on the earth because of the wrath of God, the hatred of Satan, the rebellion of man, and God's judgment represented here by the eagles circulating around. 
There, uh, uh, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We're talking about the end of the very end before the kingdom age, the millennium. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. That's Revelation 19. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It will be the ultimate oops, the ultimate uh-oh, the ultimate oh man. The second coming of Jesus Christ will be a shock to the unbelieving world. You know why? Because he's... When he comes back the second time, he's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's giant Jesus, mighty and riled. He comes in judgment and with a sword to execute vengeance and judgment on a world that rejected him after numerous years of preaching and mercy and grace and their refusal to repent, even an angel proclaiming God's gospel. And so he will bring the end And He will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And there's more, but it's going to have to wait until next time. Father, we anticipate, we look forward to Your coming. And even before the coming of Christ to the earth, we look forward as Your church to Your coming for the church where we meet the Lord in the air And so we will ever be with Him. And the words of Paul ring true today when he said after that, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The comfort for us is that your your plan includes us. And we look forward the blessed hope of the coming of our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ, for us. It doesn't mean that we're going to go through life unscathed. Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation, but we know there's a difference between the tribulation of the world and the tribulation that comes from heaven, from you, in terms of judgment. Give us grace, Lord, to face the suffering, to have the patience and the perseverance. Sometimes, Lord, we feel the trials are too much. but we know that you won't give us more than we can bear. You will give us a way of escape. And sometimes the way out is through. Give us strong backs. We pray not for a lighter load as much as the strength to endure. Give us a steady hand as we hold a full cup of trial and suffering. I know many in this fellowship are hurting, struggling, dealing with deep issues. You know all about them. Bring your comfort. Bring your hope. And finally, Lord, we would pray for those who maybe have said no to you for a long time. They've heard the message. They know about Jesus. They've been to church services. They've seen altar calls. But they themselves haven't yielded or surrendered their life to Christ. I believe there's some who are here tonight. To them it's all been about, 
well, I have a Bible and I go to church and I'm a pretty good person. But they haven't surrendered their life to you yet. Lord, when we hear from Joel the things that are going on in this world and when we read your word about what Jesus said and Zechariah said and Daniel said and John said, Jesus said, that there is coming a time of unparalleled suffering and judgment before the final end of the world. We see what's happening as predicted by the prophets. I pray that you would wake some up. Wake us up. To be right with you. To walk in holiness, in righteousness with you. To come to the cross and be forgiven by you. To not play church any longer. To not hide in the shadows any longer. But to give their lives to Christ. And we pray that you would do that right here, right now. As your head is bowed and your eyes are closed, as we're closing closing the service, if you're here, but you've never really personally surrendered your life to Christ, or maybe you had some religious experience, but you're not walking with Him, you're not walking in obedience to Him, and you want to turn from that, get right with God, have your sins forgiven, and have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and be ready for Him to come. I want you to raise your hand up. Just raise it up so I can see it. I'd love to pray for you. I need to know who I'm praying for. God bless you. Right toward the middle. Anyone else? Raise it up. Yes, to my left. I see your hand. Raise your hand up. Anybody else? Right there toward the front in the middle. Anyone else? Hand up. In the balcony. Thank you for waving your hands around. I see your hand. Again to my left. Anybody else? Anybody in the family room? Father, we pray for those who had that raised hand a moment ago, and we pray that you change their heart, change their life forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet, please? We're going to do this quickly. As we sing this final song, I'm going to ask you to get up from where you're seated, in the balcony, in the middle, in the front, find the nearest aisle, and stand right up here. I don't want to be, be, belabor this or make it long. As we're singing this final song, you get up. And stand right up here. I'm going to lead you in a prayer to receive Christ. If you raise your hand, or you almost did, or you didn't quite have the time, or I didn't see you, get up and come right now. Jesus called people publicly. I'm calling you out right here, right now, publicly. Get up and come as we sing. All who are thirsty. Come on up, right up in the front. All who are we'll wait for you. Come down from the balcony. Come out from the middle of the road. Make a stand for Christ tonight. Come on. Make a clean break. You washed away in the ways of His mercy. As deep cries out to Anyone else? Come quickly. Don't wait any longer on this. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let's call 
to you for a long time. Say, I want to give you everlasting life. Those of you who have come forward, I'm going to pray with you right now. I want you to say this out loud after me. Say these words from your heart. Say these words to God. Let's do business. Lord, I give you my life. I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe in Jesus. That He died on the cross. And that He rose from the dead. And that He did it for me. I turn from my sin. I turn to You as my Savior. Fill me with Your Holy Spirit. Give me power to live for You. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.